Have you ever asked God for confirmation, for, for, for a sign, for some sort of guidance to know that the thing that you are considering, the thing that you're looking to, the thing that you think God would have you do really is from God? Have you ever asked God, God, how, how can I really know that this is for real, that this is from you, that this is what I must do? Show me what you really want. Now, if you've never asked God that question, can I encourage you not to do it? Because the answer might sometimes come in a rather unexpected way. God might actually choose to answer that. And he, I don't think, is into doing trifling little things. Abraham, 20 or so chapters earlier than the passage we're looking at today, asked God that question. Come back to Genesis chapter 15. All the way back in Genesis 15, as God was reiterating his covenant, his promises to Abraham, this is what happened. Genesis 15 and verse 5, God took Abraham outside and said, look at the sky and count the stars if you are able to count them. He said to him, your offspring will be that numerous. Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Okay, so far we're all good. You're going to have a lot of kids. Abraham said, okay. God also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But Abraham said, Lord God, how can I know that I will possess it? God appeared to Abraham, made a rather incredible promise, right? It's as if he said, I'm going to give you the eastern suburbs. I've brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans. I've brought you from Campbelltown down to Bondi to give you this land that you see. And God said, and Abraham thought to himself, well, having kids, that's one thing, but giving me this land? How can I know that it will happen? And God gave him an answer. A rather strange one to be sure, but an answer nonetheless. Come down to verse 13. The Lord said to Abram, know this for certain. Right? How is it that you're going to know? Here it is. Your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that doesn't belong to them and will be enslaved and oppressed. However, I will judge the nation they serve and afterward they will go out with many possessions. You will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation they will return here for the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Not the sign perhaps that Abraham was expecting How will I know, he said. God said, well, what's going to happen is you're going to die. So this isn't even a sign you're going to see. You're going to die and your descendants are going to go off into slavery and after 400 years in slavery, then they'll come back and they'll take possession of the land. Now, the remaining 10 chapters that we've got left of Genesis, all the way from chapter 39, really through to chapter 50, and then on even into Exodus, is this happening is the first of the confirmations that God's promise is true because what he said to Abraham would happen, happens. Come over to Genesis chapter 39 and verse 1. Genesis 39. Now Joseph, if you remember last week, was sold to slave traders. Joseph had been taken to Egypt. An Egyptian named Potiphar, an officer of the Pharaoh, captain of the guard, brought him from the Ishmaelites, who had brought him there. There he is, slavery in Egypt, the first of God's people to go there. Joseph, the one thought dead by the family. But here begins that promise to Abram. How will I know we'll own this land? Because this will happen. 
Now, what I want to do in our time today, first I'm going to run through the story of these three chapters, 39 through to 41. After we've run through the story fairly briefly, I then want to talk about the point. Why is this here? What is God showing us and telling us? Before we then draw out a few lessons from it. Well, here's the story. I think this is a familiar story. If you've you've ever been to Sunday school, if you've been around church or Christian circles very much, you'll know these three chapters. They're very uh, common ones. They're they're easy to teach the kids by and large. Although I'm not quite sure why chapter 39 is, because it's a little bit sordid, but there you go. Right? What happens? Well, uh, verse two, as, well, sorry, verse one, as Joseph arrives in Egypt, he's purchased by Potiphar. He comes to be his household slave. The Lord was with Joseph, verse two, and he became a successful man, serving in the household of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made everything he did successful, Joseph found favor with his master, became his personal attendant. Potiphar also put him in charge of his household and placed all that he owned under his authority. From that time, from the time that he had put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house because of Joseph. The Lord's blessing was on all that he owned in his house and in his fields. He left all that he owned under Joseph's authority. He didn't concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now Joseph was well built and handsome. There's the story, right? Uh, Joseph enters into this household and because he's the heir of the promise, whoever blesses him is themselves blessed. And as this man gives responsibility and care to Joseph, God in return blesses this man. Joseph rises to be the point where he governs all of this man's household. And what happens next? Verse 7, after some time, his master's wife looked longingly at Joseph and said, sleep with me. She got a hankering for Joseph Joseph said no, she kept pressing the point, Joseph said no, she tried to trap him one day when there's no one at home, Joseph runs away leaving his garment behind, it tells us, we don't know, is that all of his clothing or just his outer cloak, possibly all of it I think, it ends up being rather compromising because she then blames him and says he came and tried to have his way with me, Potiphar understandably is cross. Joseph gets thrown into prison. But, verse 21, the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him. He granted him favour with the prison warden and in a mirror to what happened when he arrived in Potiphar's house, the warden put all the prisoners who were in the prison under Joseph's authority and he was responsible for everything that was done there. The warden didn't bother with anything under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him and the Lord made everything that he did successful. Once again, God continues his promise. It's astonishing, isn't it? It's very strange in one sense to say the Lord was with Joseph. I mean, he's gone from being the preferred son of his father to being beaten up by his brothers, sold to slave traders, sold as a slave, and now ends up in prison. I mean, I don't know that you can get much lower than where he is right now, but still God is at work. Now, chapter 40 is then this other very familiar story of the two servants of Pharaoh who are thrown into prison, Pharaoh's cupbearer and Pharaoh's baker. And both of them arrive in this same prison that Joseph is in, Potiphar's prison, and both are given Joseph as their servant within prison until the day when they both have dreams. And it turns out that the one who had received the dreams, Joseph, is now given by God the interpretation of these dreams. He interprets them and interprets them rightly, 
right? One of them is killed, one of them is placed back into position of authority and power and once again serving Pharaoh. But he forgets about Joseph. Have a look at chapter 40 and verse 20. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he gave a feast for all his servants. He elevated the chief cupbearer and the chief baker among his servants. Pharaoh restored the chief cupbearer to his position as cupbearer and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But Pharaoh hanged the chief baker, just as Joseph had explained to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. Ah. <sighs> Two more years pass. Joseph's still in prison. Cupbearer serving Pharaoh. What's going to happen? Well, chapter 41 and verse 1, at the end of two years, Pharaoh had a dream. And once again, we're picking up this theme of the dreams. And what happens? Well, Pharaoh has a dream and he dreams of seven fat cows and seven skinny cows and the skinny cows eat the fat cows and don't seem to be getting any fatter. He has a second dream, seven plump and juicy uh, sheaves of grain and then seven thin and withered sheaves and the thin and withered ones somehow eat the plump and juicy ones. And Pharaoh wakes up and he thinks, what on earth was that about? And no one can tell him. And the cupbearer has a little moment of, oh, oops, ah, now I remember Joseph. Not quite sure what he's been doing for two years, perhaps He not only handed the cup to Pharaoh, but had the taste of it a little bit. And anyway, slightly sozzled, he finally remembers Joseph. Joseph can interpret dreams. He did it for me and it all came true. So Joseph is brought to Pharaoh, 41.15. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream. No one can interpret it. I've heard it said about you that you can hear a dream and interpret it. I, I can't, Joseph answered Pharaoh. It's God who will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. So, verse 25, Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dreams mean the same thing. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Seven years of plenty are coming, followed by seven years of famine. And the famine will be so bad that it will be like they devour the years of plenty. They will be but a memory. So, Joseph says to Pharaoh, prepare now. Appoint a man to take charge of your harvest now to store a fifth of everything you collect so that when the years of famine come, you will survive. Verse 37, the proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants, and he said to them, can we find anyone like this man, a man who has God's spirit in him? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one as discerning and wise as you are. You will be over my house and all the people will obey your commands. Only I as king will be greater than you. So go and prepare. The same journey, the same trajectory in Potiphar's house, the same trajectory in prison. Now, across the entire land, Joseph, second only to Pharaoh. And off he goes and he does exactly that. He gathers the grain, he prepares and stores across the years of plenty. He marries the woman Pharaoh gives him to marry. God grants them two sons. The quest for the seed continues. And then as he prepares, the famine comes. Verse 56, the famine had spread across the whole region. So Joseph opened up the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Every land came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain for the famine was severe in every land. I'll tell you what, that's some pretty amazing years. Joseph was 17 when he was sold into slavery. 
Joseph was 30 as he comes before Pharaoh and takes up this mantle of power. That's a pretty crazy 13 years that happened. Two years since the cupbearer was released, so 15 years he spent serving Potiphar and in prison. Now, no, I don't think my math is quite right there. Uh, It really doesn't matter. It was a very, very long time. What are we going to make of it? Okay, that's the story. What is the point? Now, remember, as we're reading through Genesis, there's a couple of really big themes that we're looking at, some important aspects of God's work that we're trying to trace through. One of them began all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. and We're going back a long way now. This this seed, the heir of Eve, the one who would crush the snake, overturn the curse, restore creation, bring salvation to humanity. That's a big ask and that's the one really we've been looking for. It wasn't Cain, it wasn't Abel, it wasn't Seth, the children of Adam and Eve. As we roll through the years, right, it wasn't Noah, it wasn't any of Noah's children, it it wasn't Abram, it wasn't Isaac, it wasn't Jacob. We're still looking for that one. We're looking for the fulfillment of the promises, the promises that God made to Abraham in chapters 12, 15 and 17 of Genesis, the promise to bring blessing to the whole world through a descendant of Abraham the promise to have many descendants and turn into a nation, the promise to inherit the land, the promise to bring blessing through him and curses to those who cursed him. We're looking for the fulfillment of the promise. We're looking to see how is it that God will achieve his purposes through his own sovereign election. If you remember Genesis 25, as Jacob and Esau wrestled in the womb and we saw God so clearly choosing his man to do his work in Jacob. Well, what's the point of these chapters? Is Joseph the seed? Is Joseph the promised son, the one who will save the world? Well, he is and he isn't, right? I mean, it's a a very strange format that we've got here so far. As we're in the story of Jacob, but we're focusing on Joseph, we want to see, is he the one? It hasn't been Judah or Levi or Simeon or Reuben out of the sons of Jacob, of Israel? Could it be Joseph? Now, on the one hand, he is God's chosen man. As we saw last week, those echoes of Jesus, the one God chose, betrayed by sinful men to save the world. It sounds an awful lot like Jesus, doesn't it? And Joseph will do that. We've seen it here. God's chosen one, betrayed by his sinful brothers, to save the world as he brings food that would otherwise devastate them all. And yet Joseph, it seems, is not the one because his salvation extends to those borders for a short period of time. And as we'll see in the coming chapters, Joseph too will die and pass. Is this the fulfilment of the promise? Do we start to see here God bringing about his grand nation living in his place under his rule? Well, yeah, again, sort of yes and no. This is certainly one of the clearest fulfillments of God's promise so far. This is the beginning of those 400 years in a foreign nation in slavery that God promised to Abraham. In one sense, what we're seeing in these chapters is God's guarantee that what he promised is true. (laughs) He said to Abraham, how is it that you will know that I'm going to give you this land? Well, because you're going to go to Egypt and be slaves. They are now arriving in Egypt. 
And the slavery, if it hasn't quite begun for all of them yet, they've passed through it already. We see God's sovereign election once again, so clearly marked out, every step of the way, preparing Joseph for this work of saving God's people. To be the ruler of Potiphar's house, to be the ruler in the prison, to be the ruler now of all Egypt, to accomplish God's purposes. God directing, sovereignly directing, even the rulers of the world, of the nations, under his hand for his purposes. And also, as you can see, it's part of his even bigger plan. Remember what he said to Abraham? The sin of the Amorites is not yet complete. You guys need to go away for a while so that this people will become so wicked that it will be righteous for you to come and destroy them. Right now, it's not really righteous. They're not wicked enough. We're going to need some time. And you need to survive and, in fact, flourish and grow in that time. We see the echoes here of the Lord Jesus Christ, God's chosen man, betrayed by sinful men in order to save the world. Now, what lessons can we draw then? If that's our chapter, if that's the point, as we keep seeing the promises of God at work, the sea, the quest for the seed continue, God's sovereign election standing to achieve his purposes, What lessons can we draw? I want to draw out three for us. The first one really is a very simple one, but extremely powerful. We've seen it already, and we're going to keep seeing it. It's a very simple sentence that you do well to remember. God always keeps his promises. It's such a simple sentence. My children remember it. It was was something they learned at CMS Summer School years and years and years ago. God always keeps his promises. Here is a fact to hold on to. No matter what's happening in your life, no matter whether times are good or hard or really, really bad, God always keeps his promises. I mean, what a a promise he made to Abraham, right? Astonishing. I'm going to give you the the eastern suburbs, right? All of this from, from Double Bay all the way down to La Perouse or whatever it is and as far west as... South Dowling Street, whatever you like, you know, you can have it all. It's going to all be your, what an amazing promise. The proof is going to happen across 500 years. The scale of it doesn't even fit into our minds of what's happening. And yet he does it. Exactly as he promised, it happens. He's promised even greater to us. The promised land of heaven found in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, the seed, the blessing, the promise, all wrapped up together. God has promised and he will keep it. Now I'll tell you what, there is something to preach to yourself. Every morning as you get up, every day when you're struggling with whatever your battle is, God keeps his promises. That is lesson number one. Lesson number two is a lesson that we can draw from chapter 39. I'm not making a lot of this, but it's, it's worth drawing something out from it. I think Joseph here really is exemplary in how he engages with temptation and flees from sin. Now, we might not necessarily be in exactly the same circumstances he faced himself, but it's worth learning from his experience. See, temptation came to him at a time of success, at a time of, of greatness, not necessarily when he's down and low. It can come then. 
Temptation is often at its worst when we're at our worst. But perhaps we're even in greater danger when we don't realise we're in danger, when things are going well, when life is good, when we're celebrating, when we've won, when whatever it is that's happened, we're on top of the world. That is when temptation came to Joseph. It came to him in his virility, in his youth, with his looks, right? Joseph was well-built and handsome. We'd be well to take honest stock of where we stand. And notice that temptation came in the midst of opportunity. After some time, his master's wife looked longingly at Joseph and said, sleep with me. Now, I wonder if perhaps some of us blokes aren't thinking to ourselves, well, why um, why can't that happen to me? Sounds pretty good, really. Um, Now, I'm not talking about uh, someone else's wife inviting us. I mean, a woman just telling us what's on their mind is really what I mean. It seems a bit like a miracle. But you see the opportunity, right? He comes into the home one day when there's no one there and she grabs hold of him and says, let's have at it. Although she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused. And one day when he went into the house and none of the servants was there, she grabbed hold of his garment and said, it's worth recognising that there are circumstances when temptation is more likely to strike than others. Surrounded by Christian people, by family, by those who give us strength and courage in the Lord, it's a really good place to be on our own with opportunity striking, even in the midst of success, is very dangerous. But how does Joseph respond? Again, I think this is exemplary. We can learn from Joseph. Verse 9, as he replies to his master's wife, he says, No one in this house is greater than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How could I do this immense evil? And how could I sin against God? Now, here's a lesson worth learning. Learn to call evil, evil. Learn to call what is wicked, wicked. Perhaps we find it too easy to just fluff it a bit. It's not that bad. It's just a little thing. It's, oops, it's a mistake. It's a, no, if it's evil, call it evil and learn to see who we sin against. Was Joseph, would Joseph have sinned against Potiphar? by having sex with Potiphar's wife. Of course he would have. And yet here Joseph says, no, my sin is against God. He is the one who in the end I am rebelling against by disobeying. Our world would love us to believe that two consenting adults can do whatever they want, harms no one, isn't wrong. That's not true. Evil is evil. Wickedness is wickedness. And when we sin, we sin against God. And so we must be prepared to do what Joseph did. Verse 12, she grabbed him and said, sleep with him, but leaving his garment in her hand, he escaped and ran outside. I don't know if it was a nudie run. I don't know if it was the outer garment and he was left in his undies, whatever it was, highly likely to be embarrassing. It doesn't matter, right? In the moment, he wasn't caught up in what was happening. The people around him didn't convince him to just join in. Even if it meant embarrassment, even if it meant failure, he fled. And honestly and rightly could stand before his God and say, I have not sinned. Even if the consequences of the world unfairly fell upon him. 
there's a second lesson. We need to learn to be like Joseph right here. Call evil, evil, and run away. But there's a third lesson, and, and, and this one I think is the biggest one I want to draw from this. Here's the lesson. Belonging to God's people does not guarantee an easy life. Belonging to God's people does not guarantee an easy life. Joseph was God's chosen one. He had the dreams that God gave him. He had the the delight of his father and the position of power within his family. Joseph belonged to the family of promise. He was an heir of the incredible blessings God poured out upon his people. God had chosen him for the specific purpose of saving the world in Egypt. And yet his life must have sucked. So hard, so horrible. And and I fear that Christians, and by Christians I don't mean people out there, I mean us too, often fall a bit into this trap. This trap of painting Christianity as, as, as lovely and nice as bunnies and rainbows and frolicking in the meadow, as life is now going to be a breeze and all plain sailing before you, as things are just going to work. That's not true. I saw a rather strange ad this week. Uh, It's an ad from Australian Defence Forces, one of their recruitment ads. I'll post a link to it in the description if you want to go and watch it. And it's a strange ad because it's so chirpy. It's so positive and upbeat You can have a career in the Australian Defence Forces. We'll pay you well. There'll be lots of jumping out of helicopters and skydiving. You get to travel and see the world. You can play with expensive toys and equipment. There'll be lots and lots of smiling that'll happen everywhere. It's just a brilliant thing. Come and join us. Such a strange ad to belong to the armed forces. Because even in times of peace, I wouldn't have thought that army life is particularly nice. What about boot camp and the rigorous discipline required? What about the deprivations you have to go through and the hardship? What about all the deployments and having to move and leave behind people and friends? And Let alone if we were to go to war somewhere and you were in active deployment. Then getting a nice salary. No, you're in the trenches. People are dying around you. There is suffering like nothing else in life. I feel in Christianity we often end up making that same mistake, particularly in our evangelism, where we want to present the gospel as this thing that's all nice and good. And there are lots of good things about Christianity. Don't hear me wrong, please. Forgiveness from God, reconciliation and restoration, a community of believers, the promise of heaven to come, peace now in our lives with our Heavenly Father and in our day to day, holiness and the pursuit of living the way that God intended. There are lots of good things about Christianity. But when was the last time that in our evangelism we told somebody that Jesus promises you suffering, that Jesus invites you to follow him by carrying your cross? That Jesus promises hardship and persecution. That Jesus promises that your life as a believer will be hard. Now, there is a happy ending, right? Joseph got a happy ending in this life. Ours is not promised for this life, but there is a happy ending. Heaven awaits. God keeps his promises. Our promised land is sure and certain. But the journey there 
is likely to be one of suffering. Even as the day-to-day of the Christian, we are called to fight sin, to put to death the sin that is within us. That's not a pleasant battle. It's not easy, it's not nice, it's frustrating and often seems to be a losing battle. We are called to be so countercultural in our walk with Jesus that we ought to expect to be shunned and ostracised for our faith. We are told that the gospel we preach is the stench of death to those who are perishing. No, we're not going to expect to make friends and influence people. It's a great challenge, isn't it, to our evangelism? When was the last time that we sent somebody away to count the cost? Said to them, no, you ought not to follow Jesus without taking very, very seriously that it's going to cost you everything. When was the last time we did that? And yet we do so knowing that God has his chosen man. It wasn't Joseph. Joseph served his purpose to save God's people from from the the famine out of into Egypt at that point. But God has chosen his man, the Lord Jesus, like Joseph betrayed by sinful men, but in this case, to truly save the world, to save us, to save you. God bless. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this part of your word. We thank you for what we learn from Joseph and this amazing story. Thank you, Father, for your sovereign hand so clearly at work, directing the course of events to put Joseph into the place he needed to be to save your people. Thank you that your promise is sure, your word endures and always comes to pass, that we can trust it just like Joseph could. Father, teach us to live faithful lives depending upon you, fleeing sin and temptation facing the hardship of life as it comes, knowing that it's in your hand and yearning for your glory. Amen.